0: Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Feel free to grab a seat as we wrestle with this text and what it means for us today. We're gonna wrestle with not only this text, we're gonna wrestle with where does Paul get some of the ideas in this text? I would suggest that as we back into this text, we're gonna find that some of these ideas are not only Paul's ideas, they're distinctly Jesus' ideas too. We're gonna wrestle with what does it mean when Jesus says things? Like, I, I want you to turn the other cheek. What is Jesus asking us to do? And it worked out perfectly with this coming up this week, that, that I am coming to you today bearing scars. I don't know if you can see from there, I have eight beautiful stitches that are run up the side of my, my, my face right there. And, and, and they actually came from a really mundane, boring thing, but I, I met a new friend. Uh, the other day and and he was just trying to get to know me and he he started off with a phrase that warmed my heart. Instantly he said, you seem like a really cool guy and I was like, oh I I like this guy. He seems like he likes me. It's the natural way of things, right? And it couldn't be further from the truth but at least he thought it for a moment and then he said, how did you get that amazing like scar that you're going to have? I feel like you probably got it longboarding down some crazy sort of pathway, or I, I feel like you got it doing mixed martial arts, I'm like, now you're miles off track. If I, if I looked like anything, it's not like someone that does mixed martial arts, but, but it was actually skin cancer, and it's all dealt with now, but it was just this weird like, juxtaposition of scars and thinking through some of the scars that we have that maybe aren't physical, that are from interactions with other people, and, and as we wrestle with Paul and Jesus and what might be his hard ask. In amongst that, we're going to push into some territory that I find deeply problematic. Last week, for those of you that were here, we wrestled with Paul's sexual ethics. That there was some awkwardness. We got through it together. We survived as a community. And I had this moment where I turned up it was like, maybe there'll just be an empty room of people. Like maybe it was just too not, not far enough right for some people, not far enough left for other people. But, but we tried to land in this place of, of grace. But if I'm honest, I dislike this passage more than I like, disliked last week's passage. I, I, I want Paul to not say some of the things I think he says here, and I, and, and I want Jesus to not say some of the things that I think Paul got some of these ideas from. I actually don't want them to be in there. I, I wonder why, I wonder if it's partly because when Paul talks about sexual ethics, I, I actually feel like I process that at times. I actually feel I can own up to that. I think what we learned last week is that Paul implicates every single one of us in that struggle. He doesn't leave any of us on the outside. He says, this is, this is all of you combined. This one I don't necessarily want to deal with. I don't want to, to agree with him on. I want to keep as like a, a private bit of, of, of my own failure, and, and maybe you'll see why in just a few moments. Just as a reminder for those of you that are catching up, if you're new to South, new to this series, we're looking at this letter to the church in Corinth. Paul has visited multiple places. He's started churches in all of these different cities. And of course, as you might expect, he starts the church. Everything looks good for a while. He kind of gets back into contact with the church and the strong ethical teaching of Jesus that he's landed them with. They've kind of deviated from it just a little bit after a while. Gordon Fee says Corinth was at once the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It gives you some pictures into just what that city might have looked like on the ground. It was a port city. Lots of money came into Corinth. Lots of of wealth built in Corinth. People did what they wanted to do particularly rich people did what they wanted to do, particularly rich men did what they wanted to do in Corinth. So we've said this, Corinth was rich, Corinth was liberal, anything goes in Corinth. Corinth was diverse, full of all these different cultures. Corinth in lots of ways is very similar to us. And, And in line with today's passage, I would say that something else comes to the surface as well, something hidden maybe in history. Corinth was litigious. If you're unfamiliar with that word, it's, it's the process of, like, of lawsuits, of, of, of suing other people. This was a historical thing in Corinth. People liked to sue other people. It just became the popular thing to do. And, and, and what we see in Paul's letter as we get into this passage is that wasn't just people outside the church, that was just as much people inside the church as well. And maybe we would say this once again right? Current surprises us in how similar it is to us, even though we're talking about a couple of thousand years ago. Isn't that our culture too? Every time I drive back from the mountains, I'm amazed by the number of billboards that say, did someone ski into you today? Don't you know that you can sue them and you can get loads of money? It's just, it feeds and I need to get revenge, need to get our own back, need to get what is coming to us. And, and where did that come from? Well, well, maybe it all came from this. If you're over the age of 40, maybe you remember this moment. Jury sends message, local woman wins 2.9 million over burning hot coffee. There's a good chance that if I were to tell you the circumstances, you would know instantly. A lady went to a McDonald's, she pulled into a drive-thru, she got a hot cup of coffee, she put it between her knees and the coffee spill burning her, her legs, and she got $2. Million, 2.9 million dollars for it. And many of us at the time were like, that's just absurd. Just from my infancy, my parents told me hot drinks are hot drinks. You put them somewhere where they don't burn you. It, just, it was just a rule of life. But now what do you get in every single cup of coffee? You get this coffee is hot. On, written on the cup. And, and every time I see it, I'm like, my complaint is if the coffee's cold, you don't need to tell me the coffee's That's just my broad expectation of coffee. And from this moment, nuisance lawsuits just start to appear everywhere in modern society. A couple that I loved just as I was reading this. Uh, one was about a family that wanted to travel to Granada in Spain. So they booked their tickets first class to treat themselves, flew from Washington, DC, out to London initially, and then got on the second leg of their flight and looked at the little, you know, the little airplane map that you get to tell you where you're going, and found that they were going west. They were going back where they'd come from. And so they called over an attendant. and said, Excuse me, can you help us? We have a problem. We're supposed to be going to see Granada, and we're going west instead of south, and the attendant looked at them blankly and said, Granada? No, 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 we're going to Grenada. So they went all the way to a Caribbean island simply because they can't distinguish between two different vowels, and their objection was, well, we said Grenada when we booked the tickets. Hard to prove, perhaps, and they found themselves going off in completely the wrong direction and sued British Airways because they felt it was British Airways False, my, my, my second favorite one was a, a lady who was looking at an, into an apartment and the uh, landlord sent her the listing for the apartment and she replied with a smiley face emoji, which the landlord took to be a binding agreement and pulled the apartment off the listing. Uh, and so they finally came back and said, well, we're gonna sue you for a month's rent because you didn't actually want the apartment. Uh, after all, all sorts of nuisance lawsuits that get to take place in modern society Corinth very similar to that. People just threw lawsuits out constantly, and so now Paul has a group of people that he's teaching the ethics of Jesus, and they, of course, as you might expect, act just like the society they came from. A practice that was present all over the place in society became present in the church as well. And remember what we said: Paul is constantly wrestling with as he sh- as he tries to shape this community in the way of Jesus. How does the church survive with all these other cultures around it? Or or maybe for this week specifically, how does it survive or even thrive when the culture is completely anti-Jesus? Every week, that's what we've wrestled with, right? Every week we've looked at, well, this, this culture that they're in, this doesn't look like the way of Jesus. And this group of Christians, this group of first followers of Jesus is this small enclave of people that are taking seriously the way of Jesus, but everything else is different. What I love about this is it maybe preps us for where our society is or will be. We've lived for a long time in a society that has said Christianity is the dominant culture, it decides what happens. And yet the church never knew that in its early years and it grew like crazy. There was something about it that was kind of countercultural that caught people's attention. Paul knew that, and maybe will get to know it in the future. So that's all of the background, all of the context that goes into Paul's next address. Chapter 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people would judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not a competent judge of trivial cases? do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? wow like a load going on there we could spend hours on that we're gonna we're gonna hold fire on some of it we're gonna just take this as in general paul is saying i don't like to see lawsuits in the church taken anywhere else There's, there's there's a bad thing that happens when that happens therefore if you have disputes about such matters do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church he says, when you see culture different to the church all over the place, or at least should be different, are you really going to take your case, whatever it is, to, to them for judgment? How, how can they decide if it's a completely different way of life? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? All the way through this conversation, there's been a tension between Paul and this church he started because they believe they're wise, they have a special wisdom. And so Paul at times will just bait them and prod at them. He'll say things like, surely there's someone wise enough to make, surely you are so wise, so gifted, so special, constantly he's needling them on this assumption that they have this deep wisdom and then revealing to them, no, no, you're not actually as wise as you think you are. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, One brother takes another to court, and all this in front of unbelievers. Now, if you would say, I'm not personally following Jesus, some of this language may make you think, Paul doesn't think an awful lot of unbelievers, does he? He kind of thinks of us uh, as outsiders, and and actually, there's some fairness to how Paul sees that. Paul sees the church should live a distinctly different way of life. The the good news for you, if you would say, I'm not following Jesus, is the ethical demands of Jesus that we're going to get to you're not on the hook for those right now. You don't have to live up to this incredibly difficult way, and it is incredibly difficult to live up to what we're going to get to next. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And my question for Paul and on to Jesus is, who wants to be cheated? Who wants to be the one that loses? I I find, like, personally, I don't like this being in the Bible because I, I, I know this about myself, I love to win at stuff. I love to win at stuff. I don't want to lose, I want to win. For those of you that have ever played card games, specifically the game of poker, there is a saying around poker, if you can't spot the sucker in the first 30 minutes at the table, then guess what, my friend? That means you are the sucker. You are the one that everybody's taking money from. No wonder all my friends that I play poker with are like, you should come more often. We love it when you're here, it's amazing. Buy back in, keep going. We'll even loan you money to get you to keep playing. There, there, there is this, this, this idea that right, we, we know people that aren't winning and we know when we're winning. And we have a society that values winning. Whether you are someone who would lean more right or someone who would lean more left, you, you can at least recognize that we had a president that told us this was about winning, right? That's a society statement. We love to win. I want to win. I don't want you to cheat me. If anything, I want to be the person that cheats. Now, that's, to, that's a confession too far, I'm, I, I take that back. But, but I love to win. Competitiveness is in my nature so when paul says why not rather be wronged i can give paul a whole list of reasons that, that i wouldn't rather be wronged I, I can give paul a whole list of reasons why i wouldn't rather be cheated why i should come out as the victor i think somewhere paul has got this from jesus there's something he has learned from jesus sayings that have been repeated over and over again in the church that make me think this sounds this just sounds like jesus and there's a few different options jesus at different points gives different ethical commands around around losing, really, around what it is to settle quickly with an adversary that's taking you to court, around going to someone one-on-one and, and making a confession before it becomes a public thing. But uh, my question is, which Jesus ethic is Paul highlighting here? And I suspect it's this one. You have heard that it was said, I for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles, give to the one who asks you and do not turn from the one who wants to borrow from you. And if Paul's teaching was bad, if Paul's teaching hits me hard, this one is even worse. This one is so, difficult to live up to, so difficult that I actually at times have looked at it and said, Jesus, I have so many questions about this. Is this really what we're supposed to do? Because it just, to my human wisdom, seems unworkable. How do you make that work in society? How do you let the evil person win and and say we're not going to stop them? How is this fair? And I seem to have somewhere this obsession with fairness. It seems to have built in me somewhere I want it to be fair, I want it to be even, and yet Jesus seems to be saying, doesn't matter, what, what, what is going on there? So let's look at this for a little bit and see what we can grasp from this. You have heard, it say, heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This is an old, old command an old, old instruction. It's mentioned three times in the Old Testament. We'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 19. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this is right back towards the beginning, fourth book of the Bible as we have it now. And we're told this, an act of evil has happened and we must purge the evil from amongst you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid and never again will such an evil thing be done amongst you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This was an ethical command that made sure life was fair. When someone did something wrong, you could limit the extent of the punishment because someone had taken an eye, we're going to take their eye. Someone takes a foot, we're going to take their foot. Everything was controlled and doesn't that seem fair? Don't you look at that and say, that seems like justice. That law had been around for ages and people held onto it very deeply. Think because as we are today as humans, post this story of the fall that we read in Genesis, we have an inbuilt human response to personal injury, which is to desire revenge and to make it fair. Somewhere inside us, we are injured. Someone insults us, we want to insult them back. Someone hits us, we want to hit them back. Someone takes from us, we want someone to balance the books. We have an obsession with fairness. We have an obsession with winning, and we want to hold to that deeply. Wherever you're from, whoever you are, I would suggest this is probably part of your culture. Somewhere. Sometimes it reflects different cultures in different ways, different areas of the country in different ways. In the University of Michigan, they did this fascinating study. They took a group of people from the Appalachian Mountains and compared them with people from different areas of the country. They gave them a a task to do. They were supposed to fill out a questionnaire, they were supposed to take it, and they were supposed to hand it in at the end of a long corridor. And one group of people was left to walk down, hand in their questionnaire, and walk back. Uh, And as they were walking back, somebody would stand in front of them uh, and they were left to just kind of navigate their way around this person and they measured how many steps away from the person did that person step aside. Uh, And then they took a whole bunch of people and sent them to the room with a questionnaire and in the room they were insulted over something and then they measured how many steps it took for those people to step aside just to see how the insult affected us as human beings. They noticed that with the deep honor culture of the Appalachian Mountains, that they stepped aside much later. They would walk almost to right upon the person before finally stepping aside. And they said, we picked an offensive lineman from the football team to be the person that was walking down the corridor. So everybody stepped aside. There was nobody that just walked straight into him. But they noticed that regardless of where you were from, regardless of who you were, an insult affected how you behaved. There was something it changed about your relationships with not only the person who insulted you, but everybody else around you. Revenge, getting our own back, winning is wired into our DNA. If you lose a big fight, it will worry you all your life. It will plague you until you get your revenge, said Muhammad Ali. Taylor Swift said, There is nothing I do better than revenge, and if you've heard a song so often, right, they center around, she eviscerates her ex-boyfriends and relationships in front of the world. She recognizes her capacity to get revenge through music. Even when we surrender revenge, it's quite often for ulterior motives. The famous godfather, Don Corleone in Mario Puzo's The the Godfather, he he has this moment where he feels like his son's life is under threat. So he says, "I, I forgo the vengeance. I'm going to let it go. But he owns, I have selfish reasons for doing that. I'm worried that my other son, something might happen to him. And then he finally finishes by saying, and if it does, if he should get hit by a bolt of lightning, I'm going to be looking for vengeance. I'm going to be after vengeance. It's wired into our nature. The Old Testament is a great space to look for vengeance language for people that feel frustrated, that long for someone to take vengeance for them. Set thou a wicked man over him, whoever him happens to be. And let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Revenge is natural. Revenge is human. Revenge, if we're honest, has moments where it feels delicious. It feels like, what's the saying? It's a dish best served cold. I have waited and then I have taken my moment and look at them now. Look at them now. It's a human tendency. And into this, Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And I have this human moment where I say, Jesus, what are you thinking? What happens? What have we been told by our superheroes? All it takes for evil to survive is for good people to do nothing. And into that, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. This has got to be complex, right? There's got to be something under the surface. I'm going to, by human nature, look for a get out clause to say I don't have to do this because it just doesn't, again, it doesn't seem fair. And then Jesus is going to give us a list that it's hard to work around. And before we get into this list, I'd say, I feel like it's important to say, Jesus' list is particular, yes, but also broad. There are personal insults that we're going to read about that Jesus says we're supposed to respond to in a specific way. And yet there are other stories in the New Testament where Jesus makes sure that people end up leaving situations that are dangerous. So if you happen to be in something like an abusive relationship, what I don't want you to hear is Jesus says, do not resist the evil person, so I'm supposed to stay there. What I don't want you to hear is that there's the something that you're going through that's a horrific story, that no, no, I'm locked into that because of what Jesus says. But I do want us to honestly wrestle with the text, which is hard to live up to. This is hard teaching. This is not easy. Jesus seems to say somewhere we should respond with grace. Somewhere we should respond to the evil person with grace. What does he mean? by that. And here are his examples, his concrete examples that may, may not be familiar to us, but would be familiar to every person listening in the day that he spoke them. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Turn to them the other cheek also. He specifies the right cheek. Why? He specifies the right cheek because most people are right-handed and when they strike a person, they strike them on the left cheek. In this culture, to strike, strike someone on the right cheek was specifically an insult because you had to strike them with the back of your hand. It was intended to provoke a reaction. And Jesus says in the moment someone intends to provoke a reaction, choose to react differently. Choose to react differently. His scenario includes when somebody physically slaps you, which again, I have questions. Next passage, and if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. What does that mean? Specifically, this scenario includes someone who was down to their shirt and last items of clothing. In this scenario that he paints the person doesn't have money to buy themselves out of the lawsuit, he goes as far as saying, when you've got nothing left, let them take your shirt. What does that mean for us, Jesus? When somebody sues you, do not respond to evil with evil. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them 2 miles in a uh, Roman occupied territory if a Roman soldier demanded you carry their pack for them for a mile, they could do that. They could make you make that journey with them. And Jesus says, when the occupying force, the people that you hate, the people that have invaded your country, when they demand that service of you, that service you naturally resent, go to. When someone subjugates you, same applies. I was pretty locked into the S's by now. I was stretching just a little bit, you might observe. I'm like, what can I come up with that begins with S? And the final one, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And people keep coming back time and time again saying, can I borrow something else? Can I borrow something else? Can I borrow something else? Don't resist the evil person. When somebody supplicates you really stretching now on the s's but i thought you know yes, you like s's right you'll stick with them uh wh- where does this come from it's complex right it requires wrestling with the stuff on this list that i'm like jesus i want to know exactly what you mean help me grasp your teaching i, I want to follow you, I want to figure out what it is to follow in your ways, but there's asks that you're making here, that I know people, and I'm like, what does that mean for them? I know circumstances, and I want to know what that means for them. I've been in circumstances. I've been the person that's been struck on the cheek, maybe not with a traditional backhanded slap, but I have been the person that has struck first, and I know what it is to want to respond. What do you mean when you say don't, don't respond to the evil person? And I have so many questions still about this text but let's try and wrestle with a few of them and when you've wrestled a little bit keep wrestling and when you have questions and you say I'm not sure I can live Jesus ethical teaching have good conversations with other people and figure out what is it that God is saying to you because Jesus ends all of this section with these words be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and my question for us as a community is what happens when perfect is beyond us What happens when we're still figuring that out? And one of the beautiful things that I love about Jesus and his journey with us is I used to live a life that said this, Jesus is happy with me when I get to the right answer at the end. And what I recognized after years of following him was Jesus was with me as I was wrestling for the right answer with him in this moment. In this moment where the situations where I'm saying, I'm not sure about some of your teaching, Jesus, I've got questions for you. Help me understand why you would ask this of us. First, I would say constantly throughout his language, Jesus recognizes and acknowledges the risk of revenge because it sounds delicious, but it rarely works out as we expect it to work out rarely works out as we expect it to work out. Maybe that's what Paul means when he says, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. He seems to suggest that somewhere in ignoring Jesus' teaching, we end up pushing over to the other side. We become the ones that maybe start cheating. We become the ones that are so obsessed with winning. We don't play the game fairly. But even outside of Jesus' teachings, there's examples that I can think of as to how revenge that seems almost suitable, or almost necessary, has for humans turned out horrifically badly. I'm going to give you a quote from Gavrilo Princep: I am the son of peasants, and I know what is happening in the villages. That is why I wanted to take revenge, and I regret nothing. I regret nothing. Have any of you had that moment? I've had that moment where i have like, this was delicious. I took my revenge, and in this moment, I regret Nothing. Right now it feels good, it feels fair, it feels just. I'm just curious, how many of you know who Gavrilo Princip is? Anyone want to throw up a hand? We had two people in the first service, one kind of maybe. I'm not going to test you, don't worry, it's not a quiz, but Gavrilo Princip was a man who in 1914 murdered Archduke Ferdinand of Austria. It was a set of circumstances that he set in motion where the Archduke, the, the Austrians were so offended, they attacked Serbia along with their allies, and Russia and France responded on the side of the Serbians. Eventually, Britain and America and other nations would get pulled into this conflict. This is the moment, Gavrilo Princip's revenge moment, is the moment that historians say started World War I. This moment is the difference between a war and no war. This moment is the difference between 20 million dead and other circumstances. I wanted to take revenge, and I regret nothing. I'd love to know when this quote is from. Is it from 1940? 1915? 1916, 1917, 1918, how many dead did it require for him to say, I regret some of it. I regret everything. This is an extreme example, but somewhere it's indicative, right, of where the pattern of revenge can go. And Bosnians and Serbs are still fighting over some of this history, and it goes on and on and on. Mahatma Gandhi was supposed to have said, an eye for an eye, but the whole world goes blind. That's what happens when you land in a cycle of revenge. At its worst, this is the toxic nature I have, I have to get my own back because nobody can quite agree on when it's fair, so we cycle and we cycle and we cycle and we cycle. Jesus acknowledges that revenge can go bad. It's not always as delicious as it first feels like it will be. And yet, what I love about him most is that he also, in amongst that, he teaches and models that grace is full of possibilities. There's this response to Jesus' cross that is compelling. It's the response of a Roman centurion who, who, of whom we're told this. When the centurion and those with him that were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. What got to them? Was it the earthquake, maybe? What was the all that happened? all that happened was perhaps simply this. Jesus responded to crucifixion in a way nobody responded to crucifixion. In a society who knew what it was for crucified people to, to suffer for hours yelling insults and yelling accusations at their tormentors, he'd just watched a man who had died praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For a Society that had seen what it was for people to die in suffering suffering and agony, thinking only of themselves, they'd just watched a man die who had been concerned about the man on his left and the man on his right. They'd seen an earthquake, yeah, but earthquakes had been seen before. They'd seen some other events, but, but perhaps what's most compelling about the crucifixion is how Jesus responds to it and how he offers forgiveness in the midst of it. that That doesn't make sense. So even though I have questions for Jesus and his teaching and just why exactly he came up with this ethical way of living, what I can say about the Jesus I follow is he lived his own teaching. And that's always compelling. The writer E. Stanley Jones said this, return good for good and evil for evil, then you become an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth person. The other man's conduct determines yours. You get your code of conduct from the actions of the other person. You have no moral standards of your own. You are an echo. You are an echo. Return good for evil, and it leads to your ennobling and to the possible redemption of the wrongdoer. To the possible redemption of the wrongdoer. Every single one of those scenarios that Jesus sets in his teaching creates the possibility that the other person may say, oh my goodness, this person has responded like this, I can't keep going with these actions anymore. I am turning the corner. I am turning around. There is something about them that has the potential to motivate change, to motivate the situation to change. That's what East Stanley Jones pulls out when he says, Return good for evil, and it leads to your ennobling and to the possible redemption of the wrongdoer. Paul would say to the church in Rome, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. The writer Sandra Cicinara says this, revenge only engenders violence, not clarity and true peace. I think liberation must come from within. Our wrestling with this teaching, I think, is somewhat dependent on this. Our response is really determined by whether we believe Jesus or not. See, I followed Jesus out of this recognition. I am not a good ethical judge. I am not good at figuring out how to respond to things. I am not good at determining a good way to live. I followed Jesus because of what he did and also because of how he taught and what he said was the way to live in the world around us. So when I read things and say, Jesus, I'm not sure about that, the question I have to ask myself is, do I believe he's wise or not? Do I believe he's wiser than me or not? And am I willing to continue to wrestle with him to ask what is your call for me in this moment? When we do that, the writer Dallas Willard said this, we heartily join his cosmic conspiracy to overcome evil with good. So I go away with these takeaways. I go away saying, Jesus, I, I have questions. I struggle to see how this makes a fair society. I struggle to see where all of this leads. If everyone just says yes to the evil person, is that really what you meant in this teaching? I go away wrestling. And I go away hopeful saying, Jesus, I know that if this is what you have for me, you'll journey with me. As I figure out what it means in the day-to-day what it means for the moment now that I'm trying to figure out, what it means for this scenario and that scenario. But I go away knowing that you imply that grace is the way that I'm called to respond. It should always be gracious. And I go away with this encouragement. This is Edwin Chapin, an 18th century writer. Never does the human soul appear so strong as when it forgoes revenge and dares to forgive an injury. I love his language of daring because I recognize when I embrace Jesus' teaching that seems so countercultural. I am doing the daring thing. I am risking a lot on what my Jesus said to me to do. And he's gonna have to help me to figure that out. And perhaps he's gonna have to help you figure that out too. So I'm gonna invite you to stand. And before Aaron and the team lead us in a final song, I'm gonna invite you to join me in a practice. You don't need to have all of the answers to do this. You don't need to know exactly how it's playing out in every scenario, but here it is. I'm gonna read the white lines. You're gonna read the yellow lines. And if you want, as you read the first three, you can actually make a motion and you can actually throw whatever it is that comes to mind to the cross. And then the fourth one, you can throw your hand towards heaven. Jesus, in the midst of your difficult teaching, we embrace the fact that we would need your help to live this out. We recognize the fact that we will rarely know how to apply this in every circumstance, but we long to partner with you. We recognize the fact that whatever this may lead us to do practically, that resentment and anger and unforgiveness are toxic to our souls and so we ask you to release those burdens to help us to look to you to see the way that you both taught this and modeled this for us so God all our resentment and desire for vengeance we send to the cross of Christ All our wrongdoing, we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ. All our hopes for restoration, we set on the risen Christ. Jesus, as we sing, would you meet with us as we need? Some of us in this room have been afflicted during this teaching and need your comfort. Remind us that your journey with us, amen. If God is working your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.